We're in the Gospel of Luke. If you were here uh, last week, it seems longer than that. We went through verses 1 through 4. And uh, for extra credit, anybody tell me what that was about? What we were basically doing is going through four verses that talked about the preface to this book. We looked at uh, who wrote it, the manner that he wrote it, Luke said he's given a detailed and orderly account that includes many things that aren't in the other Gospels. And uh, alluded to the fact that he was neat and orderly and almost uses legal language when he starts out and says, in as much as these things are. It's written to who? Theophilus. Theophilus, very good. (laughs) And you tie this with the book of Acts, which was also written to Theophilus. You have a longer story. Uh, Some of the biggest portions of the New Testament were written by Luke, contained in his gospel, which is the longest gospel, and add to that the book of Acts. We know who wrote it. If you don't remember the why, it's in verse 3 there that we read last week. We know to whom it was written to Theophilus, and I might add to us as well. The book is written to us. This book was written in a right at the end of a dark period in Israel's history. They'd been living in a long night of spiritual darkness. 400 years have passed since the last prophecy in the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. And we come 400 years later we begin to get this new gospel. It's incredible. Think back. I don't know who the oldest person is here. Uh, How far back do you go? 70, 80 years? Can you tell me what's happened up to 400 years ago? This is 2020. That goes back to 1620. In 1620, the Mayflower landed in America. It was only 11 years before that that the Jamestown settlement was uh, set up in Virginia. That's a long time ago. In 1735, about 300 years ago, we had the Great Awakening in the New England part of our country especially. Other things happened. In 1776, what happened? We won. We won, somebody says. We had our Declaration of Independence. In 1836, an event called the Battle of the Alamo took place in what is now Texas. In 1861 to 65, we had the Civil War which tore this country apart just about. In 1890, I'm a little off kilter in my taste, but my favorite artist died, Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, I have not emulated him. I have both of my ears, but I liked his art. 1890. Shortly after that, my grandparents were born in the 1890s. And they're both gone, all four of them, I'm sorry. Both my parents who were subsequently born after that are gone. 
Think of all the things that have taken place. In 1903, the Ford Motor Company was established, and those silly guys in North Carolina called the Wright Brothers flew out of Kitty Hawk. Ladies, in 1920, guess what happened? Women got the right to vote in 1920, 101 years ago. Subsequent, or prior to that, 1917, we had the First World War, called euphemistically the war to end all wars. Uh, and then in 1941, the Second World War. And it's continued since then. That's a lot, and I didn't look at half of what I wrote down there. A lot has gone on. A lot went on between the end of the Old Testament and the New Testament that we're looking at. A lot. <clears throat> and we're about to explore that. Great, great significance here. Think of the night, the spiritual darkness that's embedded in the history of Israel. Think of everything they've gone through. If you chart their history, which is basically the history of redemption, we have these cycles, blessing, disobedience, blessing, disobedience. Israel's living through all that. One thing after another. They start out with that wonderful covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 that lasts all the way through the Old Testament and into the New. Tremendous thing. Then we have 400 years of enslavement in Egypt and the parallel life of Moses uh, charted at that time. We see that in the Old Testament. We see 40 years in the wilderness after that. The conquest and occupation of Canaan and then the chaos of, chaos of the time of the judges after that. They want everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We have the promise of deliverance hidden in the book of Ruth. And it's seen a little bit in the birth of Obed. We have that glimmer of light there in the book of Ruth. We have the apex of David's reign, followed by Solomon's, another great reign even perhaps greater than David's. And then we have the divided kingdom. We have a terrible time there where the two kingdoms are fighting against each other. We have after that the dissolution of the northern kingdom and the 70-year exile of the, of the southern kingdom. One thing after another. And then 400 years of silence. Now that is a remarkable thing. That speaks a lot to the character of the people we're looking at here in this first, uh, first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Even at this period of time, Israel is not on a plateau of euphoric living. What, what are they doing? What are they dealing with? They're under the hand of Roman rule, along with the other Jews who are in power to some extent. A lot has happened. And yet there's also the glimmer of hope. We saw it a little bit back in Ruth, but you see it toward the end of this first chapter of Luke. We read in those verses there, uh, I want to look at 76 through 79. And you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. There's yet, yet this hope 
here at the end of 400 years of darkness. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to cling to. You have a similar hope with words like that in Malachi 4 and and the book of Isaiah in chapter 11. But they are under Roman rule. A guy named King Herod, who is really a puppet of Rome, he is king in name only. Do you know anything about him? (laughs) Well, he's one of four Herods mentioned in the scriptures. We'll only talk about two of them probably in our study. He is from the... uh, Idumea, if I'm pronouncing that right, on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, that portion of the land was right below Judea. About the only place I can tell you of significance in that country or that territory was the city of Beersheba, which we hear about and see in scripture. And he was from there. And he goes up and has control of Judea and up above that, even into Galilee, He ruled from about 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. And he did some good things. While he was king, the temple was worked on and rebuilt. But beyond that, very little good. There were still false gods being worshipped and their temples being built. And nothing was done about that. Nothing at all. His, uh, under the standard dating of the Gregorian calendar, which I don't have a copy of. He probably uh, died uh, shortly after his rule in 4 BC. And then according to that, Jesus would have been born in 5 or 6 BC. That's the Gregorian calendar. That's not the one you have on your refrigerator by any means. But he was a despot. He was so insecure that he killed just about everybody that he thought would be a threat to him. And we see that in the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter. He was so bad, he killed members of his own family that he thought would usurp his power. That's who's in charge. He's the one particularly mentioned in Matthew chapter chapter 2. 400 years. And yet, we have hope here. It's a time of emptiness the empty religion of the people. Let me take you back to Matthew 23 just for a moment there to look at this. Matthew 23, we read these words in verses 5 through 7. As soon as I can fix my eyes. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. This is woe to the scribes and Pharisees. This is the empty religion that we're talking about. To be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. This is what was going on. These are the religious leaders. What does this mean? They were willing to put on a show but they weren't real. And I don't know how many of the people knew that. Some did. And it it gets uh, even worse, especially when Christ begins his ministry. He says to these kind of people, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, your whitewashed tombs. This is the religious leaders of this time. No wonder it's called a period of darkness. Maybe you've heard that trite saying, it's always darkest before the dawn. I don't know if that's true. You should know that. You're always out there looking at the stars. (laughs) It seems to be sometimes, but in history, 
That's what's happening here. It is very dark in Israel, but we're about to see the dawn. Luke, the historian, is going to tell us about this. And it's a great story he shares with us. He's going to give us the setting for this. He gets, he may have gotten a lot of his details from Mary, the mother of Jesus. They crossed paths when Luke was uh, walking and serving the Lord. She was alive. Uh, and we are introduced to other people who are faithful Christians, and he's able to write about them, people he met. The characters we see here, the players in our story, are about five. The first one we meet is a priest named Zechariah. He's a priest. His name means God has remembered again. In Psalm 103, we read, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. We too often do. He does not forget. He's a blessing. We tend to forget. God does not. In every promise he has made, there's a surety that he will fulfill that promise. That's what's beginning to unwrap here in the first chapter of Luke's gospel. Who is this man, Zechariah? He was of the division of priests, and that division was known as Abijah. Where does that come from? What does that mean? He was at his duties here, especially in the temple at this particular point we read in our story. What happened was there's a roster of priests. This was first established by King David. You got to go all the way back to First Chronicles in chapter 24. They had a roster. There were too many priests for them all to be at the temple at the same time. So they rotated it and they had 24 divisions. When you got down to the eighth division, you get to that one named after Abijah, and that's where you find Zechariah. It was their time to come and serve in the temple. They only did it two weeks a year. The rest of the time, you go back to your hometown, your home parish, as, you, as it were, and you minister there. But for those two weeks, uh, 54 of them came to the temple and served. It just so happened it was Zechariah's turn to come. Do you know in the lifetime of a priest, he would have only done this once, one time. And some got skipped over altogether and never had this opportunity, this privilege. This was started, as I said, by David. It was abolished during the Babylonian captivity, but it was later restarted again. And we have evidences of that in around 580, 590 BC. Ezra writes about the return of captive Israel to their hometown. And these divisions, which were down to only four, are set up again for service in the temple. Well, even though the scribes and Pharisees here weren't all that good, they at least had the form of religion and they went back to worshiping God the way that they knew how. This eighth group was up to serve at this time. And here we're told about this man, Zechariah, a priest named Zechariah. There were at this time perhaps as many as 8,000 priests serving the Lord. God singled out and set this time up for Zechariah's group, Abijah, to be serving. And he was selected. They did this by drawing lots. This isn't buying a lottery ticket. This is the way in the Old Testament they selected by the 
I believe, the supervision of the Holy Spirit, and he was selected. He got the long straw, if you were, and was able to go and serve in the temple. It is a great, great honor, and he's, you know, he's blessed. Well, he has a wife, and her name is Elizabeth. We see that here in the second part of verse five. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. What does it mean she's a daughter of Aaron? She's from a family of priests. Oh, this is looking better all the time, isn't it? Zechariah's married to a woman who's of the family of priests, all the way back to Aaron. This is God's working out this situation. It's a great blessing. By the way, they tried to keep the marriages within that tribe because they did not want the, the line of priests to be broken down. So they tried to do this thing. And of course, they're successful here. This daughter of Aaron. She was uh, married here to this man who was a priest. She was encouraged to do this, I have no doubt. As Luke is wont to do, he focuses on seemingly insignificant people and insignificant events. You know, if you ask me about my wife, I'll tell you a few things about her, where she's from, a little bit about her childhood, maybe some of the silly things she did. Uh, okay, you'd leave that alone. That's great. God bless you, Dennis. And he has. But this was even more than that, you see. This was in the minds of these Jews who were looking for a hope after 400 years of darkness, significant, though they didn't grasp it right away, significant. It's first glance at these people that we're going to think of them, and I hope this follows through as we study Luke. What happens? What's the significance of all this? Who is this woman, Elizabeth? Well, you know the story. You're going to see her interplay with the Messiah down the road in the next few chapters. Together, they're both righteous. They're both justified. It says in verse 6, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. What does that mean? They were righteous and blameless. What does that mean? Are they perfect? It says they're blameless. The righteous part is easily. What the, easy? What does that mean? They were believers. They were justified before God. Their sins were forgiven. They've been cleansed in the blood. They have divine approval. You are righteous. Each one of us who are believers, we have that. We are righteous before God, declared that way by him because of the blood of Christ. Well, what are we saying when we say they're blameless? <laughs> now, look, you could know me a week and <laughs> throw that out of the adjectives describing me. Oh, I, I, do you remember this? Well, yeah, I'm sorry I did that. Yeah. Well, what it meant was <clears throat> they had no disapproval from men. Can you think of somebody in the Old Testament like that? Go to the oldest book in Scripture, chronologically speaking. Job. Job. Yeah. What does it say about him? 
said he was a righteous man. He said he was upright before men. Everything was good about him. That would be his testimony. They were a very religious couple. And if you were introducing them around, you'd say, hey, I want you to meet Zechariah and Elizabeth, two finer people you'll never know. That was their testimony. That was these two main characters. Well, let's look at verse 7. Look at their plight here. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. All right, let's go. What do you know about the Old Testament? What does this mean for an Israelite woman to be barren? Pardon? It's basically looked upon as a curse. You have no children. You've not given this man a son, and unfairly or not, the finger was pointed at her a lot of times. You haven't borne him a son. You have no heir. This is awful. God must be judging you for your sin. They had that upon them. And what else does it say? I'm here to testify. They were old. (laughs) I was talking to somebody on the way in this morning about our physical ailments. And all you can do is conclude it's not easy getting old, is it? They were old. What does that mean? They were not able to conceive, physically speaking. That had left them. She is barren and she is old. (laughs) But they were good people. They were like Noah, like it was said of him in his wicked day. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. What a blessing that would be to hear God say that to us. And that ought to be our goal. This was thought to be a curse, a judgment for sin. She denied her husband a heritage. But there's something beyond that too. At this point in time, the Messiah had not come to the scene. The women of Israel hoped and prayed, no doubt, that they would be the one who bore the Messiah. That's a worthy aspiration, is it not? It's great aspiration. I don't think it's that selfish. I think it's wonderful. I think it's a godly desire. But knowing she's barren means that she's not going to bear the Messiah. She's not even going to bear an heir for her husband. Terrible situation. Most women would have jumped at that honor. She was not going to have it. And I think this circumstance points to what's going on with regard to the prayer here. God delights to work in circumstances like this. Do you have a testimony where he's done that in your life? Well, if you're a Christian, you do. (laughs) Some of us have been saved out of families that weren't Christians. God delights to work in situations like that. That's my testimony, and I don't say this. It's not about me. It's about God. I was saved before my parents were. God just worked that out. But all along the way, I had godly men who influenced in me in my life. Sunday school teachers from uh, elementary school on up. And I loved these guys. I loved my father. But they showed me the way to truth. I had a Sunday school teacher who got me to South Carolina. <laughs> He had gone to Bob Jones University and wanted to tell me all about it. Well, my father hadn't been to college. He didn't know, he didn't know where Bob Jones was. 
I ended up down here. He thought I was coming to a school for golfers, you know. You heard about, if you're from Georgia, you've heard of Bob Jones, Bobby Jones Expressway. Well, we quickly see in this instance here that God delights to work in circumstances like this. What things are on your heart to pray for? Well, let me ask you Bible knowledge quiz again. Do you know anybody else in scripture that fit the the, uh, description of Elizabeth here? Sarah, that comes quickly to mind. Very good. 90 years old, she's postmenopausal, and what happens? She has a son. God delights to work in such situations. And who else? Hannah. 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 Poor Hannah, she's described as. In 1 Samuel, crying for a child, has already plotted how she's going to rear this child. He will be dedicated to the Lord. He will take a Nazarite vow. He will do this. And God blesses her with a son who is the prophet. It's the prophet Samuel. What a blessing. Who else? Mrs. Manoah. You know who that is? We don't have her name. She's the wife of Manoah, who is the father of Samson. Long infertile before they had Samson. A long period of time. We have Rachel. She was barren for several years until she was able to bring forth Joseph in Genesis chapter 30. And boy, didn't that cause tension in that family because she wasn't the only wife in this situation. But God heard her and gave her. I think you could count Ruth in this. If you read the story of Ruth, she was married 10 years and had no children when her husband died and her sons And she didn't get married right away, although the Lord sent her through her mother-in-law to start scouting it out. (laughs) But she didn't get married right away. So there was another couple years in there before she had a son. And God gave her Boaz, who helped her, and they had Obed. And there's a woman in Shuman. That's all we know about her in 2 Kings. Do you remember the prophet came to her and gave her, the prophet Elisha, and blessed her. She had a son. God delights to show his power and his other attributes in situations like this. Wouldn't you say, God loves me if he did something like this? Is that your testimony when you see your children saved? God is so good to do this. Thank you, Lord. Well, they're both godly, but they're both childless. You know, sins... People might characterize this as a sin in the life of Elizabeth. Sins are not always at the root of what's going on. They're not always a curse that we're, uh, that is causing us to suffer. We suffer many times without having sinned, although we do sin, we're not perfect. But that's not the cause of the things happening to us quite often. It is bad theology to think that way. And it's bad manners to judge somebody that way. If you would just repent, you would have a child, Elizabeth. That's not what was going on. We need to be aware of that. Sins do not always, are not always at the root of our problems. Quite often they're not. There are other reasons for this. It could be our sin. We need to repent if it is. 
Could be other people's sins that cause us trouble. But it could also be that God wants to use this for his glory. And I believe that's what's happening here. And in a tremendous way, practically speaking, nature's planned obsolescence had robbed these people of a child. But that's all about to change. We do have this verse from 1 John I wanted to remind you of. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. These folks were righteous. They practiced that. They practiced it in their living, their daily living. You see it in his devotion to the temple, to the God of the temple. And we might also add to that circumstances notwithstanding. You know, your children, you know how it is with your children and grandchildren. He made me do it. She made me do it. You know, pointing the finger at someone else. Circumstances notwithstanding, son, I told you to do that. I don't care what your brother did. I told you to do that. Circumstances notwithstanding, God calls us to be holy. And thankfully, these people were. Hannah had a bitter bitter sorrow in her life. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly over her situation. But the, so the God of grace doesn't exempt us from trouble. This was a godly woman who took a trip to the temple every year. And God did not give her a child for years, for years. He disciplines us for his good that we may share his godliness. Do you know, sometimes you can pray from, say, the first week you became a Christian, whenever that was, all the way through your life for something and not see it answered. If you ever have an opportunity, read the biography of George Mueller, that great man in Europe who took care of orphans and sometimes miraculous things happened in answer to his prayer. And salvation of some people he prayed for for over 60 years took place after he died. You see, we need to realize who we're We're not dealing with. That would be the wrong way to put. We need to realize who we're in relationship with God. You see, he sees the picture from eternity. We can't imagine what it was like when the Mayflower landed here 400 years ago. God sees everything from the point of his creation in Genesis to the end in Revelation as if it was laid out before him here on a platform underneath your Christmas tree kind of thing. Oh, I see everything that's going on here and I see it right now. That's how God views eternity. He's an eternal being. So sometimes our answers don't come in the time frame that we expect them to. I've been praying for so long and you haven't heard me, but he's using that. It's against this background that our scene moves here to the temple. So many priests are here serving for two weeks out of the year. This particular, your particular section would be serving. And if you're blessed, you get to do this. It just so happened, if you will, that he was there. Look at verse 8. This is a premier event. While he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, He was on duty, doing the work that he was called to do. 
What a blessing. He was waiting at the table, the altar there, to offer incense and prayers for the people. He is doing what he was called to do. You had two people come in, helpers for him, one to carry charcoal and the other to carry the incense. And then when they got things going there on the altar the way they were, they excused themselves and left. And he was there before God interceding for the people of Israel. He may have been doing that. He may have been praying for a son. He may have been doing both while he was there. I can imagine over the years that he was a priest, his, <laughs> I've done this to my wife uh, many times. Please pray for me. I'm doing this and this and this. I imagine she probably said to him, now, Zechariah, or whatever she called him, Zachy, go to the temple. Don't forget to pray that we would have a child. Don't forget to pray. And I don't think he forgot. I believe that he was what exactly he was doing here during this premier time. He was chosen by lot to go here at the time of sacrifice. This happened twice in the day while he was on duty for that week. It happened early in the morning, about 9 a.m. That's not real early. Some of us are still in bed by then, but others not. And then there was an afternoon sacrifice. And he was alone there at that time. But we read later there were a lot of people there. So it was probably, a, it could have very well have been a Sabbath probably an afternoon sacrifice when more of the people would be there. That adds to the drama of what's going on here. It is probably the evening. There's a lot of people. Verse 10 says there's a multitude there and he's doing what he's called to do in this most holy place. What a blessing. It's a day, perhaps day of atonement. I'm not sure, but the incense comes and we have here an example of what took place. Blood, and incense. The blood was poured during the time of the sacrifice when he went into the Holy of Holies. We have a picture of redemption with the incense. We have a picture of thanksgiving. It's a great ceremony. He's done with the sacrifice, comes out of the sanctuary, but he doesn't do it right away. I believe the people were out there wondering what's going on, scratching their head, but he does get out finally. And we'll talk about that in more detail. Well, Verse 11, we'll introduce the third party here and we won't get far past this. In verse 11, who is the third party? An angel of the Lord. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. I don't know that there's anything real significant about where he was standing, but he was there. And I believe that uh, Zechariah was surprised, probably shocked. I came in here by myself. All of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appears. What did I do wrong? I thought I had everything right. I gave the, got the charcoal. I gave the incense. I did the prayer. I bowed. I did it by myself. Wonder what's going on here? You ever been real scared? <laughs> you don't know what to do? Uh, this happened to me not too long ago. I'm glad my wife's not here this morning. So you can tell her I said this. <laughs> I was finished my laundry and I was hanging my clothes up in my closet, which is in the study, the room I use for a study. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I was deep in thought. And she had just gotten home while I was back there and she came sneaking back there across the carpet and puts her head in and says, boo. I like to took everything off that wire rack in there. I was so scared and I fell against the door 
And I thought of Fred saying, I'm coming, Elizabeth. I'm coming. I was really scared. Well, she was tickled, of course. You know, you know how you are sometimes. And that was the most recent time I've been scared. I've been scared other times, too, you know, of different things. But man, that got me. I can imagine that's what Zechariah experienced. Looked off to his right. Whoa, who is this? The door didn't open. Nobody came through. What's going on here? Well, that's the, the party going on here. This is not a vision. You remember Daniel encountered an angel when he's down by the river, but it was a vision. Here, this is the real thing. This is a bona fide angel, not, not an apparition or anything. This is it. He's standing there. And no doubt, in the, when his heart hit the speed bump, Zachariah is trying to recover, saying, what's going on? What did I do? And probably scared, very scared. You would have been too. I would have been. Most of the time when you see encounters with angels in the scripture, the people are afraid. In some cases, they immediately fall and try to worship. Oh man, this must be God. This is something divine, heavenly. Other times, uh, they're just troubled. They're scared. And the angel has to comfort them. And that's what happens here. We read that in verse 12. He says to Zechariah, when he's troubled, fear fell upon him. He said, do not be afraid. Well, we're going to end there <laughs> with our story, sadly. But think about that. Zechariah's reaction to this is he is troubled. Fear fell on him. It's like an anvil came out of the sky or something. This fell on him. This wasn't building up. It's just boom. There's an angel. Well, as we go our way, think about that. Why did that take place like that? Why did fear fall upon him? Wasn't this a priest of God doing his duties in the midst of divine things? Why is he afraid? What's going on? Any questions or comments before we quit for today? No? <laughs> Ken, would you ask the Lord to bless us as we go to worship? Let's pray. God and Father, again, we do come together as this Lord's Day to worship and to give you praise. Thank you for this day and that we have a testimony today that our Lord Jesus Christ is risen, risen indeed. And we go now to worship Him. And Lord, we pray you will bless us as we go, that we will worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray for the Lord's Supper as we serve this today. That we will remember today and celebrate what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. May he forever be praised. Thank you for your mercies now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.